Wisconsin and beyond. DamascusCitizens.org WJFF Jeffersonville W233AH Monticello This is Rosie Starr for Radio Catskill. Welcome to Farm and Country, locally produced radio about rural life in the Catskills and the Delaware River Valley. On today's show, Keith Hubbard's Star Talk reports on astronomers and their recent visual discoveries circumventing some planets. Then I cast a rod into the Farm and Country archive pool and hook onto the art of tying flies for fishing in anticipation of the spring season. This audio was previously produced by Sweetwater Fishing Guide Evan Padua and myself from a visit to the Wolf Gallery and the Catskill Fly Fishing Museum. All of that coming up on today's Farm and Country. But first, news headlines from NPR. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Amy Held. At least 23 people are dead in Mississippi after heavy storms and at least one tornado hit overnight. Dozens are injured. Forecasters say more severe weather is possible in the region. NPR's Juliana Kim reports major damage is reported in the western part of the state. The Mississippi Emergency Management Agency expects the number of dead and injured to rise as officials continue to survey the wreckage. Around 8 p.m. local time on Friday, a powerful tornado touched down in western Mississippi and tore through 170 miles. Meteorologists with the National Weather Service say it lasted over an hour. The severe weather also created golf ball-sized hail. The damage was widespread. Buildings have been wrecked, and thousands of homes in Mississippi are without power. Officials say numerous search and rescue teams have been deployed to find survivors possibly trapped in the rubble. Juliana Kim, NPR News. At least two people are dead in Uvalde County, Texas, after emergency officials got a call yesterday about numerous people suffocating inside a train car. The anonymous tipster said they were undocumented immigrants. Texas Public Radio's Joey Palacios was there at the scene and reports. It started with a 911 call to Uvalde police, and they relayed the information to Border Patrol, which searched the train and found 15 people suffocating in a shipping container. Five survivors were taken to hospitals around the Uvalde area and five to San Antonio. U.S. immigration officials say they are looking into the possibility of a human smuggling incident. It happened not far from another migrant disaster last year when more than 50 people died after being smuggled in the back of a sweltering tractor trailer. Rescue efforts are ongoing after yesterday's explosion at a chocolate factory in West Reading, Pennsylvania. At least two people were killed. One survivor was found overnight. Five people are missing. It happened at candy maker R.M. Palmer's factory. The cause of the blast is unclear. Stocks gained ground during a volatile week of trading. NPR's David Gura reports the Federal Reserve's decision to keep raising interest rates was in line with Wall Street's expectations. Investors recalibrated their expectations of what the Federal Reserve will do in the coming months after policymakers opted to raise interest rates again by another quarter point. 
Fed Chair Jerome Powell said he and his colleagues had considered a pause given the fallout from the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank, but with another hike, they re-emphasized their top priority is getting high inflation under control. Trading of bank shares was volatile all week as Wall Street looked for clarity from government officials about how they'd react if there were more bank runs. Shares of California-based First Republic Bank are still near record lows despite a $30 billion lifeline from nearly a dozen larger lenders. David Gura, NPR News, New York. This is NPR News. This is Rosie Starr. Welcome back to Farm and Country. Coming up on today's show, I share some Farm and Country jewels from our archived programs. Sweetwater fishing guide Evan Padua and Joe Rist from the Catskill Fly Fishing Museum inspire the art of tying flies. But first, here is Keith Hubbard with this week's Star Talk report. Thank you for joining us on Radio Catskill for this week's locally produced Farm and Country. Country. I'm Keith Hubbard, and this is Star Talk. Last month, astronomers made an interesting discovery about a dwarf planet in our solar system. The planet in question is Quayor. What makes it interesting is that it has a dense ring of material around it. The fact that Quayor has a ring isn't what makes it so interesting. After all, Saturn has a series of rings, and Jupiter, Uranus, and Neptune each have rings too. There's even another dwarf planet called Haumea that has a ring. What makes Quayor's rings interesting is that it resides so far away from the planet. The ring lies well beyond the limit at which rings should form around an object. The conventional theory is that rings of material at the distance of Quayor's ring will coalesce into a moon. As a result of this discovery, the notion that material encircling a planet beyond a certain distance will coalesce into a moon has been called into question. The discovery was made using the European Space Agency's CHEOPS space telescope as well as several Earth-based telescopes. CHEOPS watched Quayor as it passed directly in front of background stars. As it did so, the light from the background stars momentarily dims. Astronomers noticed two smaller drops in star brightness, one on each side of the drop caused by the planet. It was these two smaller drops in brightness that led astronomers to surmise that Quayor has a ring around it. Earth-based telescopes were then used to corroborate the presence of a ring around the planet. If you have any questions, comments, or ideas for future Star Talk segments, my email address is startalk at farmandcountry.org. For Farm and Country and Star Talk, this has been Keith Hubbard reminding you to keep looking up.
For Radio Catskill and Farm and Country, this is Evan Padua bringing you Hooked on Fishing. In a time where product liquidation is very apparent in most industries, true fly fishermen take pride in their self-tied flies or where they came from and who tied them. Fly tying is an art, a hobby, and a business, and all three for some people. A major benefit of tying your own flies is the ability to make the fly look exactly how you want it to look and act in the water a specific way. Most flies are tied with fur and feather fibers from various animals like rabbit, muskrat, turkeys, and pheasants, just to name a few. Other synthetic materials help to add bodies and depth to certain flies, as well as a variety of hooks and weights. It is an ultimate accomplishment to trap or shoot an animal that is then used to create a fly for fishing, and then catch a fish on the fly you tied. There is an amazing story about a man named Edwin Rist called The Feather Heist, a fun read or listen. Check it out sometime. Many people tie a lot of flies over winter seasons when time spent fishing is less. This is a good time to learn new patterns and techniques for fly tying. Locally, we have the Catskill Fly Fishing Museum as a great resource. Also, many local fly shops in New York and Pennsylvania hold fly tying events which are fun and educational. Personally, I took up fly tying in my mid-twenties and I enjoy doing it. I tie ugly flies that catch fish. I still purchase flies also, mostly from local or well-known tires for a specific purpose or pattern that I want to acquire. Some of my most simple jig patterns use chenille and marabou on small jig heads. I am hoping to put one of these jig style flies in a brook trout's mouth through the ice. Flies can be very versatile. If you are a fisherman and want to cut down on your phone and screen time, I suggest you buy a fly tying vise and give it a try. For Radio Catskill, Farm and Country, and Hooked on Fishing, this has been Evan Padua. Casting off. For WJFF Radio Catskill and Farm and Country, this is Rosie Starr at the Catskill Fly Fishing Center and Museum in Livingston Manor. And there's an event at the Wolf Gallery. I'm going to be speaking with Joe Rist, who's going to tell us about the event and why folks are here. Hi, I'm Joe Rist. I am a guide for Catskill Flies here in Roscoe, New York. And this event is 
fly tires from all over the state in Connecticut, New Jersey, who come and showcase their talents. And there's, it's open to the public, and it's here an opportunity for people who are want, interested in fly tying to learn some new tricks to the trade. Who is it that participates in fly fishing, and what ages are they? People who participate in fly fishing are men and women and children, ages, I would say, anywhere from 13 up to their final cast, which could be in their 70s or 80s. Fly fishing is a passion. It's something that takes some time to learn. But here in the Catskills, we have the Beaver Kill and the Willow Weemock, which are streams that are great to learn on, plus the history of the Catskills, where it started, the who's who's, and the equipment and things like that, which you can find here at the Catskill Fly Fishing Museum. You mentioned equipment. What equipment do you need for fly fishing? So you need a special rod that's very flexible. It's called a fly rod. And back in the day, it was a bamboo rod. And over time, it went to fiberglass. And then it, the technology improved to graphite. But it's usually a rod that I would say could be up to nine foot long and with a special line to a reel. And it's, it's designed to throw the smallest flies 30, 40, 50 feet. It's a very flexible rod. Okay, and you mentioned flies. What are the flies made out of? Flies are made out of many different things, from synthetics to um, hair from animals to fur from animals, from birds and grouse and things like that, and pheasants. So people have learned over time how to put these things together to make an artificial fly. In fly fishing, we are trying to imitate a natural fly. And with these materials that we can use, some are buoyant and float, and some aren't, but they can move well in the water to give it some lifelike conditions so a trout sees that movement, that equals realism, and the trout will eat the fly. So you're imitating the life cycles of most of the bugs that live under the water. And then as, as they emerge, they swim to the surface, they'll develop wings, and they become adults, and it's a different pattern. The life cycles of the bugs are um, what we try to imitate, from nymphs to emergers to the dry fly to the spinner. And that's what the fly tires here try to do. We also imitate bait fish, crayfish, leeches, and things what we call terrestrials, insects that live along the banks, ants, beetles, grasshoppers, things like that. So fly fishing really puts you in an environmentally mode where you're trying to connect with nature. That's the beauty of it too. Fly fishing, in the beginning when you're, you're new, you want to catch a lot of fish. You want to be successful. But over time, you grow with fly fishing. And it's still important to catch fish, but looking beyond the water, seeing the flowers, the wildlife, things like that, that's getting more appreciative to uh, the fishermen than catching 100 fish in a day. This area is noted for its natural beauty. What makes this area so special for fly fishing? Well, it's the amount of streams and rivers that we have in this area. You can start out in the lower part where you can fish the Never Sink and then come up to the Willow Weemock and the Beaverkill. From there up, we can go to the East Branch and the West Branch of the Delaware, where there the two meet and they become the Delaware River. So we have a multitude of streams. So if we get a major rainstorm in one part of the area, and blows out a stream, which means bring the water up and off color, 
maybe a stream further up a half hour up the road could be very fishable. The other thing is we have two types of streams in this area. One's called a freestone. Freestone is regulated by Mother Nature, and that's the beaver killing the willow weemock. Then we have tailwaters, and tailwaters is the never sink, the east branch, and the west branch. Those are waters that are released from the bottom of the dam, and they are cold throughout the year. Um, so in August, it can be 105 degrees air temperature, but the water temperature might be 50-52 in the water, which is very healthy for trout. Can you talk a little bit about the species of trout that folks find here? What we have in this area as far as trout is we have our brook trout, our brown trout, and rainbow trout. Those are the prime trout in this area. There's some smallmouth bass in the area that people like to fish for. And now there's a trout coming into the picture called the tiger trout. So we have those in our area that we fish for. You've given me lots of information so far. How difficult a sport is this to learn? To learn this sport, it takes some time. It's not something you're going to go out and learn overnight. I say you have to get on a stream twice a week by your house or a pond to you know, practice your casting. I say take a course in fly fishing, a fly fishing course, or hire a guide, and he will help tremendously to get you started and what to look for. Um, there's a lot more to casting the rod than meets the eye. You have to learn how to read the water, understand the rising fish that are taking the bug and maybe what cycle they are. Um, so there's, there's a lot to take in. You've got to know your knots. Without good knots, you may not hold on to your fish too long. I see that you're wearing a shirt, Catskill Flies, from Roscoe. Are you associated with that? Catskill Flies is a fly shop owned by Dennis and Ellen Skarka. They've been in the business for about 26 years um, at the fly shop on Main Street. I've been a guide for them now for about five years. It's a little mom-and-pop shop. They offer a lot of helpful hints. They have a lot of materials, some rods and reels, and they also offer lessons if you're interested in getting started in fly fishing, plus our guide service. Everyone in this room seems eager about fly fishing. When does the season start and how long does it last? Well, that's a two-question answer. There's a sections of the beaver kill and the willow weemock that are open all year long. It's the catch and release areas. So if it's safe to go out during the winter and there's not too much ice, you can fish to get some fresh air. But the main season opens up from April 1st to October 15th by the state rules and regulations. We're in a building called the Wolf Gallery. Can you tell us a little bit about that? So we're at the Caskill Fly Fishing Museum, and the Wolf Gallery was built by Joan Wolf named after her. Her and her husband Lee were very instrumental in the museum and they dedicated this hall to her. There's a lot of history here at the Caskill Fly Fishing Museum. You can find out Theodore Gordon, the Roy Steenrod, to all the who's who of fly fishing and tying and casting. They're here and you can learn a lot about the history. The rods, the reels, the flies that you see on the walls. It's a great place to bring the family it's a great place to spend the day and fish out in front. It's just a beautiful place to be. Can you tell us a little bit about the history of fly fishing? Basically, they say it started in about the 1800s. This area here was really known as a logging and timber industry with trapping. And they did a lot of fishing for subsistence to, to feed themselves. The railroad had a lot to do with coming here. The railroad would do the lot, bring the people from New York City up. They're instrumental in stocking the streams. 
1800s, about 1850, 1840s, you know, there was Theodore Gordon, who was the, they say is the father of fly fishing here. It's all started with him. And there's so many others. There's Ed Hewitt, George LeBranche, so many others who were pioneers of their time to uh, introduce new ideas then and to make us better fishermen. The thing about the trains is people from New York City used to come up this way a lot. They thought that the air was a lot cleaner. A lot of places would just people come up from the city by train, get dropped off in these little towns. It was great for economics and things like that. Fishing just was a boom. The other thing about fly fishing history was that what we complain about today, the over-harvesting of fish, the stock fish, um, the pollution, is the same things they argued about in the 1800s. A lot of people were insulted that they were starting to stock brown trout in the waters. They thought they were going to take away all the brook trout. Well, the pollution played a big part of the brook trout dwindle. They had acid factories, they had mills and things like that, and they would pollute the rivers and kill a lot of fish. Back then, pollution was a major hindrance to the fish dying. So in the 1860s, 1870s, they brought in some German trout, and Seth Green from the Caledonia Hatchery started raising them, and they started introducing the trout to the rivers. And some people were upset about that, and some people accepted them as a good quarry, a good fighting fish, and a good fish to catch. And then it just, it just grew. They complained about the stockfish tasting like liver pellets then, as the, we, we do today, and things like that. You've been very informative. It's very interesting what you've said. And uh, Joe Riss, thank you for taking the time to speak with us. Is there anything else you'd like to add? I think everybody should take a lesson and learn how to fly fish. It's good family fun. It's a wonderful uh, sport to get into. And hope to see him on the water someday. Thank you. I'm going to walk around now to some of the tables here at the workshop and talk to folks about what they are doing. My name is Rosie, and I'm with WJFF Radio Catskill doing a story for Farm and Country. I'd like to know your name and describe what you're doing here. Uh, sure, George Chumas, and I'm tying some flies for the spring. Describe what you're doing here. The table is filled with these very colorful and textured objects. Uh, yeah, we use a lot of different materials, feathers from uh, chickens, a lot of material from deer, rabbit, squirrel, uh, just about any animal you can think of, uh, there's a material we can use. We also use various materials for tying the fly, uh, thread, usually it's uh, some kind of a nylon, and it um, comes in a lot of different colors. A lot of people just use white, and uh, I tend to use as many colors as I can. Do you come to this workshop every year? Yes, I've come every year. It's uh, been held. And you look like you're anxious to get fishing. Yeah, it's been a long winter. <laughs> well, good luck to you and enjoy the season and your workshop. Okay, Rosie. Nice talking to you. My name is Dave Marks II. I'm just tying up some flies for personal use this season. I like this gadget that you're using. Describe this tool that you're using to tie these flies. There's a number of them. It starts with a vise, which just you know something you use to hold your hold your hook in place while you work, which is you know something 
originally wasn't used. You know, with larger hooks, people sometimes will still tie them just holding the hook. From there, you start adding a bobbin to hold thread while you work so that you don't have to keep the thread tight with one hand. You know, you get little uh, hackle pliers, they're called, basically little grippers that you can put onto something. So when you're, when you're trying to manipulate a small feather, it gives you a little better grip to it. Describe these. They're small. What's the size of them? The hook size is a 22, and a larger number hook size actually is a smaller hook, depending on what type of pattern you're using, what kind of insect or, or fish you're trying to imitate with your pattern, you use a different size hook. Uh, so in this case, these are 22s. On the hook themselves, I've got you know a, a piece of mallard feather for the tail, a strip of turkey feather that's wound around to make the body, a piece of ostrich feather that makes the legs that are sticking out to each side, and then a small piece of just another feather I had that was the color I was after that's over the top to make it what's called the wing case. And in this case, this is, you know, it's trying to do an imitation of a gray-winged olive. Your finished product measures about a quarter of an inch and half an inch. What are you planning to catch with this? What type of fish? Any that'll go after it, mainly. The larger, the better. It's always more of a challenge doing that with a small hook. In order to, to tie onto the small hook, you have to use a very fine line. Uh, you have to worry about your hook bending. So, you know, if you, you can catch a, a fairly large fish on a fairly small fly, uh, you just have to be more gentle with it when you're trying to land it. Well, I appreciate your enthusiasm, and I wish you luck in your season. Thank you very much. My name is Vincent Bellotta. I grew up in Carbondale near Honesdale. The Catskills are like the idyllic promised land compared to the coal mining town that I grew up in. I just took up fly flissing. Before that, I did landscape photography. And before that, I did visual effects for movies and television. And before that, I built furniture for 17 years. And did work for the Department of Defense as a uh, model maker, pattern maker, mold maker. So I've always built and made things. It's only recently that I realized what I should have realized when I was five years old, and that's that I should be a naturalist. You have to go out and learn the entomology, and I practice my casting. This really suits my temperament. You appreciate the natural beauty, you're in the natural beauty, you're being active in the natural beauty. I like the idea of my work being judged by the trout. What a magnificent philosophy you have. Now this young man sitting with you, are you a fly fisherman also? Um, No, I have never fly fished before, I have mostly bait fished. My name is Dermot Demarest, and I am from Orange County next to Middletown. I am at this workshop, and I came here to take notes on how other people make flies and hopefully share some of my ways, but learn some of theirs. Okay, well, what have you learned today? Have you learned something that you're going to share? I've learned different techniques on how to make flies, how to tie things onto the flies, and the different stages of, like, when you go out into 
the river and you try to fly fish, what you have to, what flies you have to use, and what time of year you have to use those flies for. Yes, I am very well looking forward to the start of fishing season because then I'll get to go out and spend more time in the outdoors and just have a good time. Thank you very much. I enjoy your enthusiasm. Your spirit is beautiful. Fishing season starts about April 1st. The Catskill Fly Fishing Center and Museum does have a website, cffcm.com. We hope that you enjoyed our show this week with production by Radio Catskill volunteers Keith Hubbard and Evan Padua. Special thanks goes to our guests, Joe Rist, and participants in the Catskill Fly Fishing Museum event that took place in 2018. This has been your host, Rosie Starr. Thanks for listening local to Farm and Country and supporting Radio Catskill. Public Radio for the Catskills and Northeast Pennsylvania. Listen on air at 90.5 FM, on your phone or smart speaker, or online at wjffradio.org. Support for Farm and Country comes from Damascus Citizens for Sustainability, a community-supported, science-based nonprofit taking legal actions, providing tools for action, and raising awareness of fracking damage since 2008, proactively protecting public health in the Delaware River Basin and beyond. DamascusCitizens.org Small nonprofits receive 18% of their donations from online donors. That's why the Community Foundation of Orange and Sullivan hosts Hudson Valley Gives, an online giving day just for local organizations. The 8th Annual Hudson Valley Gives event is happening Wednesday, May 17th. Nonprofit organizations wishing to participate can register at hvgives.org. Hudson Valley Gives, May 17th. It's Ramadan, and for over 14 centuries,